Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we present you with Two Kingdoms, 16th century edition. This is a well-known Lutheran distinctive as an approach to political theology, the idea that God rules in both his left hand and his right hand kingdom, but in different ways through the state or government or temporal authority on the left and through the church and its spiritual practices on the right. It is famous and it is Lutheran, but my goodness, what a complex history it has and has not always, let us say, been used in the best possible ways. Um, perhaps that is endemic to the whole problem of a fallen world. But anyway, today we will take you on a tour of the 16th century landscape of this particular Lutheran doctrine. Dad, I think you are the one who is going to lead the way on this, having spent a lot of your career sorting out these kind of issues. So just take us right away. Yeah, I think the most uh, important scholarly study uh, in my generation was Ulrich Duckrau's Christendheit und Weltverantwortung. Christianity and Responsibility for the World. It was a massive book, uh, uh, well-researched. My late professor, Dr. Edward Schrader, uh, assigned me this text to read in an independent study for him, and so it was my first deep immersion in a German theological text. But it was a profound study for me. And Duckrau's great uh, breakthrough uh, in understanding the two kingdoms doctrine was that it was actually a kind of three kingdoms doctrine because one had to distinguish between the left-hand kingdom on the one side, God's left-hand kingdom, uh, that God works through institutions, including the political sovereignty of the state and uh, God's law, to order and preserve the creation from the destructive effects of sin. That's the left-hand kingdom of God on the one side. And also one has to uh, distinguish that from not only from the right-hand kingdom, the kingdom uh, where God works through the gospel promise to create faith and sanctify people through faith uh, in the realm of the uh, community of Christ, where the Holy Spirit uh, renews and renovates life on the way to the resurrection. Those are the left and right-hand kingdoms, according to Luther. But there's a third kingdom, Regnum Diaboli, the kingdom of the devil, which is trying to destroy both left and right-hand kingdoms of God, primarily by confusing and mixing the two up with each other so that the political realm takes on tasks of final salvation and the ecclesial realm, the community of eschatological salvation, undertakes political projects of temporal reform. And when you confuse these two orders, of course, you get nothing well done in either sphere or either jurisdiction, maybe would be a better term than sphere. So Duckrau makes it clear that Luther's teaching is actually a three kingdoms doctrine, and you always have to not only contrast God's left and right hand kingdoms, but you also also always have to parse them in terms of their fundamental opposition to the kingdom of the devil, which is the kingdom of a liar and a murderer from the beginning, 
who wills nothing but furiously to undermine and destroy not only all that God has made, but also everything that God is making new in the right-hand kingdom. So I suppose that the importance um, or the critical edge to that then would be that you wouldn't have to simply accept as an individual private citizen, church member, or whatever, uh, anything that your state or your church imposed upon you saying, well, it's God's kingdom, I have to submit, but rather recognize that the kingdom of the devil may well have been making inroads into either your church or your state. Well, you know, just from Luther's biography, this should be obvious. He, <laughs> he defied the papacy, which he regarded as a, a usurpation of the proper function of the church, uh, and we'll talk about that later on, I suppose. Uh, and he also stood up to the emperor, face to face with the emperor in Augsburg. <laughs> you know, or uh, you know, not in Augsburg, but in Worms. He right, right, right. He he refused to recant. So yes, for Luther, obviously, either church or state, to use modern terms, can be demonized. And the Christian is resourced by the two kingdoms doctrine to discern demonization. It's kind of amazing how much that real life example of Luther's distinction of the kingdom of the devil got lost in later centuries. But we'll we'll save that for the next episode. I right. Think. But I think there's some background in Augustine here that Duckrow brings out very nicely. And I want to spend a minute on that. What, what the Western church inherits from St. Augustine generally, beneficially, in my view, is his distinction between the two cities. Civitas Dei, the city of God, which I, in modern theology, translate as the beloved community of God, and uh, Civitas Terrena, the earthly city. Augustine sees both of these cities are ruled by their loves. Love or desire is the motor that moves all things in Augustine's theological anthropology. And reason follows willingly rationalizing the desires of the heart. So both cities are motivated by love or desire. What distinguishes the two cities is the objects of their love. And fundamentally, uh, the city, the earthly city, is characterized by an exceedingly socially destructive self-love above all things. This self-love or egoistic love cannot but use all other things, including God, for its own advantage. And so it has a very devilish kind of social unity. We all agree to use each other. <laughs> we all mm. agree to be bandits with one another, predators of one another. And justice simply becomes the rules of fair play. As Augustine sarcastically remarks, there is honor even among thieves, because if one thief cheats another thief, that cheated thief is outraged at the injustice of it. So that, that's the earthly city. But the heavenly city, the city of God, is the city of the double love commandment in which one loves God, our creator, above all and all things in and under God. It's the fulfillment of the double love commandment. And basically, then, you can see that for Augustine, the earthly city would be equivalent to Luther's regnum diaboli, kingdom of the devil. And Ducrow's argument 
was that throughout the entire medieval period dominated by Augustinian theology, the opposition was simply between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil, which made the task of the the state, the political uh, regime, fundamentally uh, uh, undervalued, and indeed a deep light of suspicion was cast upon it. Well, either that, or it seems, or it would have to be the place where the commandment to love God and neighbor had to be politically enforced. I mean, is, isn't that, if you see the way in, in medieval times there were persecutions of Jews or Cathars or Bogomils or whatever, wouldn't that be an expression of the church and state alliance being such that, you know, the people who weren't loving God and neighbor properly came under censure of both because the two were so entwined? Of course, there's no genuine independence of the state uh, from the spiritual realm in this theory. Uh, right, right. Th- th- and that goes back to the coronation by uh, Pope Urban, was it Pope? No, Pope Leo the First, uh, his coronation of Charlemagne. Well, we'll get into that when we get into the Catholic political theology of the Middle Ages. In any case, the status of the political regime is highly ambiguous if all you have is a contrast between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. Because then the um, state has no function of its own and is a pawn either of the devil or of Christ through the church. I see. So there's none of what we would call secular space or civil society space. Right. Precisely. Precisely. And this is where Luther boasts that he is the only one in a thousand years who properly understood the dignity and office of temporal authority. And he's rescued it from its from the way it's been despised for a thousand years. I mean, that's, that's typical Luther hyperbole, but in any case, it, it he exaggerates to make the point that his two kingdoms doctrine recognizes a legitimate relative autonomy of the political realm and a different mandate than that, uh, the mandate of the church with the idea that it's important to distinguish and keep distinguish these two mandates and not confuse them. And Luther was such a, a thoroughgoing Augustinian. Where, How did he come up with this innovation in doctrine? Was it from pushing Augustinian sources further, or was it from reading Romans 13, or was it from reflecting on the situation around him? Yeah, I think, well, we, we'll, we'll get into that when we look at, I suppose, at a couple of Luther's texts about this. But I think Romans 13 plays a big role in, in the evolution of Luther's thinking on this. It, it's not like the two kingdoms doctrine just emerges in crystal clarity, um, you know, at some datable point early in Luther's career. In fact, uh, important scholars have argued it doesn't really become clear in his mind until the mid-1520s. Uh, be that as it may, uh, let me just say simply this. When we look carefully at Romans 13, uh, it makes a couple of points. When Paul tells his Christ, the, the Christians in Rome to submit to the governing authorities because they are instituted by God for human good, he makes two fundamental claims. Whether the authorities know it or not, they are servants of God. And therefore, the Christian should submit to them not out of servile fear of punishment, 
but rather for conscience sake. That's what Romans 13 actually says. Because the Christian knows that the state is instituted by God, or the governing authority is instituted by God, in order to protect the innocent and punish the aggressor or the evildoer. And that's why the state has a monopoly on the means of violence. Paul's metaphor, it has a sword, right? So the, the secular kingdom is distinguished by the fact that it has a monopoly on violence, it is, has an authority not its own, but given to, lended to it by God the Creator, who intends through this monopoly of violence, which is the political state, to protect the innocents and deter the uh, violent. Uh, and that Christians, knowing this, are therefore to cooperate in archaic language, to obey, out of conscience, not simply out of servile fear. They are actively to cooperate with the state insofar then as it executes its divine mandate. I would just like to interject the remark that it's, again, amazing that Paul says such a thing when he's on his way to his trial and probably death in Rome. Yeah, depending on where you date the writing of the letters, letter to Romans, according to the book of Acts, he appeals to his Roman citizenship to get a fair trial in Rome. <laughs> get, me, get me out of Judea. I can't get a fair trial here. Send me to Rome. <laughs> the tradition, I mean, we don't know, actually, but the tradition remembers his martyrdom in Rome. Right. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it's, in, it's, it's just striking to me that at a time when Christians were definitely persona non grata insofar as they were known at all, which may not have been very great at Paul's time, he's still willing to, you know, give the benefit of the doubt to the state. I, I just think that's surprising and impressive. Yeah, I don't know if it's a benefit of a doubt or, or, or if it's in fact not an actual deep conviction of Paul. But we can debate that at another point. I, I just wanted to make the point that for Luther, this argument that I guess there's three components to it. The state is a monopoly of violence. It possesses the sword. The state is instituted by God for God's purposes, not the state's purposes, and those purposes are the protection of the innocent and the deterrence of the violent. Those through that threefold conviction, right, is then to be obeyed by uh, Christians for reasons of Christian conscience, which entails also disobedience. When the state violates its divine mandate and becomes demonized, as we were saying earlier, then Christians must conscientiously resist or civilly disobey or passively disobey or something like that. And Luther draws that conclusion in the 1530s when the, uh, when the uh, empire is banning uh, the translation of the Bible that he's made in uh, certain regions. And there Luther says civil resistance, don't cooperate. You must obey God rather than man. I think he also says it in um, in the treatise on whether soldiers too can be saved. He says that um, 
you know, if it's a, a just war in the in the old just war tradition and uh, a war of defense against um, an invader, then a Christian can rightly be a soldier, but qua soldier, not qua Christian. Um, but it's okay because one of the things Christians also have to do is to serve in the left-hand realm. But if there is good reason to believe that your emperor is waging a war of aggression for territorial expansion or unjust causes, then actually individuals have the right to refuse to to serve in the army. They have well they have the duty before God to refuse to cooperate with an unjust war and they have right, to that's be stronger a, stronger yeah. As Christians they have to be willing to suffer the consequences. Right and he puts a big emphasis on that on the the suffering component the willingness to suffer. Yeah. Remind this, this little anecdote I love to tell students always is the story of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. They both opposed President Polk's uh, a war, a Mexican war, as an unjust land grab. And as a result, Henry David Thoreau refused to pay the tax to support the war effort. And he was jailed. And so his elder mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, was very upset at the unpolitic radicalism and idealism of Henry David Thoreau and raced to the jail and confronted him in jail with the question, what are you doing in there? To which Thoreau replied, what are you doing out there? <laughs> nice. nice. Nice story. And that's an example, I think, of, of how one, for the sake of conscience, the same conscience which obeys the government when it is uh, uh, executing God's mandate uh, conscientiously disobeys when it uh, is not. Right. And is prepared to suffer rather than, say, forming a militia and taking up arms against the state. Right. Which would be, the, the in American history, the John Brown alternative. And then now one last thing about Duckrow and we can move on. Uh, Ulrich Duckrow was so concerned to rehabilitate a positive political theology in which Christian and indeed Christological purposes of ultimate salvation can actually be approximated through the left-hand kingdom. He was so interested in rehabilitating the left-hand kingdom as a possibility for ultimate good that he tended in this wonderful book that I've mentioned, Christenheit und Weltverantwortung, he tended to minimize the difference between the left and the right-hand kingdom. And let's just briefly say what that difference is, because it has so it is so relevant for the future. The left-hand kingdom is always, no matter how sublimated, no matter how soft, no matter how controlled by law and due process, the left-hand kingdom is always a coercive order. Its sanction is the sword. If you don't do this, you get in trouble. I always say to my students, now, why do you pay your taxes? Is it because you think the government does such a great job with your money? And they all laugh. Or is it because you love your neighbors so abundantly that you want them to have your tax money? Right. They they all scoff at that, too. So why do you pay your taxes? And they finally say, well, I'll get in trouble if I don't. You know, and I think that that's right. The ultimate sanction of the state is coercion. It is fundamentally a monopoly, a legal monopoly on violence. And that means that it cannot, in that respect, 
ever analogize the kingdom of eschatological salvation. It can perhaps analogize uh, the kingdom of the devil and eternal death, but it cannot analogize the beloved community of God. And that's fundamental. And on the right-hand kingdom, we don't have a good English vocabulary for this, but let's just use this language for the moment. The right-hand kingdom is a regime of persuasion, not coercion. And here, Luther is always insistent on the voluntary nature of faith. Faith must be free and never forced. That's why the state cannot coerce true Christianity or true religion. As Luther says, if you try to force someone to be a Christian with coercive power, you don't make a Christian, all you make is a hypocrite. Right, right. So so to restate it, maybe we could say the task of the left-hand kingdom is not to uh, cause or force faith, but to open up a space of peace and justice as much as it can ever accomplish those things, in which it may be possible for the persuasive efforts of the church to flourish. But the church only persuades through the Holy Spirit and the preaching and teaching and administering of the sacraments, but not through human... Uh, I, I guess I, I just want to add the qualification, since we're speaking to a, a mainly American audience, that free faith doesn't mean the free will or free decision apart from um, the Word of God or the Holy Spirit's work, but it means that not by the force of other human beings or not by a a kind of independently operating principle in oneself. Thank you for the clarification. I could go off on a rant here about the (laughs) terrible fallacy of equivocation that always hovers around discussions of human freedom or the freedom of the will. I won't succumb to that temptation at this moment, but I'll simply say for Luther, human freedom in the positive sense, the sense that he affirms, is freedom of desire, willingness, what we put in contemporary English as being voluntary. If if someone puts a revolver to my head and says, walk into the bank and demand money, I'm not guilty of the crime that I go on to commit with the revolver in my back because it's not voluntary. I'm under duress, right? So, and on the contrast, for Luther, Faith, Christian faith that is not free in the sense of voluntary, indeed joyfully free, is not Christian faith at all. It's some imposter. Okay, so I'm just curious, could you, um, do you know or could you speculate or reconstruct why Ducro was so eager to do this? I presume he's a, a post-war German, so that probably has something to do with his context. But I also, from what I, I gather of uh, the thrust of of uh, Christian theology from the 50s, 60s onwards was such eagerness to find God working everywhere in the world but the church. I mean, it sounds kind of like a stereotypical move of that time, but you know better than I do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the trauma of the Hitler regime and his unprecedented crimes and the terrible sense of disgrace uh, felt by that among German uh, Protestants Uh, And then also the mutual recriminations between the Reformed and the Lutherans in the wake of the uh, fall of the Third Reich. All of that is complicated in there. There was a a certain turn in the theology of Karl Barth uh, uh, in which the Lordship of Christ was interpreted 
uh, as something fundamentally transcending uh, the church. The church is simply that handful of true believers who knows that God is reconciled to the world. And that's their only difference and advantage from the unbelieving world is that they already know that they're reconciled uh, and destined for salvation. And if that's the only difference, the whole task of persuading the world to repentance and faith becomes nugatory, or it can easily become nugatory. Which has really been the kind of mainline Protestant turn since that time. Yeah, and you could probably trace it back to other sources other than Carl, the late turn in Karl Barth's theology. But in any case, if you're thinking that way, then as my wonderful teacher, Paul Lehman, was a, a Bardian Calvinist uh, and Lordship of Christ type of theologian, but he, he indulged in excesses like calling Mao's cultural revolution in China a manifestation of the present reign of Christ. Oh, yeah. I just I, hope he was severely misinformed. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just oh. a, a terrible blunder on his part. That's, again, from a Lutheran perspective, that's just a classical confusion of law and gospel and or, or confusion of the two kingdoms. I, I sort of hear the, an analogy to this in a, a more um, evangelical reformed of the American stripe in which um, nothing can really be bad because God has some great plan to make good come out of it. And I find that I, what I think it is is an expression of of piety of providence or the plan piety, as I often think of it, in which, you know, the 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 forward thrust is confidence in God, ultimate confidence in God. But I think the penultimate result of it is a complete abdication of the responsibility of critically distinguishing between good and evil, which seems to me a very ironic outcome for evangelicalism, which is otherwise seems to be fairly obsessed with the difference between good and evil. Well, and I think one of the advantages of the two kingdoms or the three kingdoms doctrine as we've reconstructed it thus far is that that task of discerning between God and the devil is laid upon the church uh, and its theologians and preachers constantly. One can never uh, uh, resort to a kind of lame belief in the already realized sovereignty of God. Uh, the sovereignty of God is something eschatologically promised to us which is present by faith and in struggle, strife, and suffering. But we cannot just lay back and say, in lamely, God has a plan. That's why you got run over by the truck or something like that. Right, <laughs> right. Know? Or lamely say that the Lordship of Christ is operational in Mao's cultural revolution or any other news events that I want to somehow claim for my religion. That seems to me uh, an equally, I mean, they, they both seem to me pretty toxic and, and frankly would make one, I think any sensible person say, I'm really not interested in your Lord or his Lordship because it seems to me downright evil. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you start claiming this political event as a manifestation of the Lordship of Christ. And I think you do have to finally I think every uh, conscientious Christian has the theological responsibility of making difficult discernments, difficult judgments. But one does that in fear and trembling and in order to do in your little corner of the kingdom uh, 
what seems good to you in the Holy Spirit uh, without making some kind of a grandiose claim about it. Yeah, and with humility of our vast ignorance of anything at any time, especially in the present. I mean, the past you can maybe get a slightly better handle on from, you know, reconstructed events and a, a bigger perspective. But in your own time and place, it seems to me way more difficult to figure out what is going on and what is right than is popularly acknowledged by most Americans, no matter what their religious affiliation. So let's, let's uh, think of what the alternatives were in the 16th century. Uh, and I think here... Surprisingly enough, a really good resource is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, especially the little essay in his ethic. You know, his ethics were uh, compiled posthumously out of various fragments, and uh, but there's a little essay uh, in there uh, on the decadence. Uh, uh, what is it called? Inheritance and decay, uh, and he's talking about the decay of Christendom. Uh, and he talks about the medieval Catholic political theology as a kind of fusion of pope and emperor, which created, you know, an ordered, stable world. And this goes all the way back to Charlemagne, where the Western Europeans realized that with the Islam encroaching from Africa through the Iberian Peninsula and Byzantium collapsing as the Islam advanced from that direction, uh, that they really needed to get their act together and form an empire with legitimacy equivalent to what Byzantium had had in order to resist Islam. And so two things happened here. Pope Leo picked the most impressive warlord of the medieval feudal Frankish empire, whom we call Charlemagne, Charles the Great, and struck a deal with him that he would be the emperor of a new and holy Roman empire. Not like the past pagan and unholy Roman Empire, but it would be a new Roman Empire and it would be a holy one. Why? Because he, the Pope, would coronate Charlemagne and therefore confer sacred dignity and legitimacy upon his imperial regime. To pull that off, then the theologians in Charlemagne's court, called the Carolingians, exaggerated a, a difference with Byzantium going back to Augustine's writing on the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son and the doctrine of the Trinity. And in order, that, in order to separate the West from Byzantium and create this unified uh, papal imperial Holy Roman Empire, they... Uh, rewrote the text of the Nicene Creed to say uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They added those three words, and the Son, which are not there in the original Greek of the Nicene Creed, which simply reads, who proceeds from the Father. And with this change, they created a terrible theological conflict with Eastern Orthodoxy, which ultimately led to the schism of 1054, some centuries after Charlemagne. But the point is, 
is that there was a synthesis that was created in the West by the coronation of Charlemagne, by the Pope. And Bonhoeffer calls this corpus Christianum, the Christian body, the Christian body politic, corpus Christianum. And Bonhoeffer, in this marvelous little essay, argues that in principle, when Luther distinguished the two kingdoms, he, in principle, rent asunder this synthesis. And what has happened in the ensuing centuries is that the two kingdoms' distinction has actually worked itself out historically in strange ways through the process of secularization, which has other sources, of course. But Bonhoeffer was driving to the point, what's left now? What's left is the world and the church as the Corpus Christi. Notice, not Corpus Christianum, not the body of the Christians, but Corpus Christi, the church as the body of Christ in the world. So that was the kind of Bunheffer's uh, updated two kingdoms critique of the Catholic option, which he simply regards as passe. Yeah. So w- the distinction between Corpus Christianum and Corpus Christi is basically that under the Charlemagnean model, then to be a citizen was to be a Christian, and to be a Christian was to be a citizen. I, I know citizen is an uh, anachronistic term there. And under Luther's option, to be a citizen and to be a Christian are two different things that may overlap or may not overlap, but they are not elided. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Would there not also have been that kind of Corpus Christianum mentality in Byzantium, though? Yeah, but it's a it's a different kind of thing because they always had a kind of a what's called a Caesaropapist uh, tendency. I, I don't want to say they they were Caesaropapist. Caesaropapist means that the Kaiser, the Caesar, is the Pope. So it's not that the Pope coronates the emperor; it's that the emperor is the patron of the bishops. So there, there is a different kind of elision of church and state, but of a different kind in exactly. Byzantium. Right. So that there, there are voices today that would like to see the restoration of Christendom. I think that's historically impossible. It's a fantasy. And in any case, it would be a destructive one. Because what um, the American tradition knows are Protestant Uh, attempts at theocracy. So another option in the uh, 16th century was, you know, the position of Calvin's Geneva, uh, classically. And this is very complicated, and uh, I don't think Calvin is to be faulted for half of the things he's faulted for. So I don't want to exaggerate this. But unlike Luther's Wittenberg, in Calvin's Geneva, there was the terrible episode of the execution of Michael Servetus for for theological heresy. He was an anti-Trinitarian, right? Yeah, he whatever it, it hardly matters. He was a heretic, and for heresy, he was executed by the town council of Geneva, even though the judicial process had a distinction in which the church tried the heresy and then handed the heretic over to the state for execution, and the state did this for allegedly civil reasons and so forth. 
Right. But I think even in, in less dire ways, I mean, in Calvin's Geneva, people were um, expected by law to attend services and to, you know, participate in various Christian activities. So it was it was like you would say, there's the violent coercion of the state backing up one's Christian activity in Geneva. Right. And we have to acknowledge historically that Luther backtracked on his own insights when later in life, when he conceded uh, to coercive measures against Jews and Anabaptists and so right, forth. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the spell of Christendom does not die easily. And particularly when you think that all of these reformers, historically, this was their horizon. They wanted to restore and reform Christendom. And they couldn't think outside of this box. They were enclosed in, within it. Well, and also just the sheer reality of the conflagrations rising up around them. They're trying to, in their own minds, restore the gospel to the church, and instead wars are breaking out left, right, and center. So it, it seems like, again, for all of our um, contemporary problems with some of the choices they made, what other option did they have? Sheer survival seemed to all of them to depend on having the patronage of the state. I think that's right, and I think that I think that there's a, one other seed here uh, uh, for the future that's important and telling because the third option uh, in the 16th century was the Anabaptist movement. Um, and the Anabaptist movement, uh, under the influence of Thomas Munzer, quickly became uh, insurrectionary and violent. There's a little bit of a story here. You know, again, like the Calvin and his followers, the Anabaptists had a view in which the kingdom of God is to be realized on the earth and the obedience of faith requires believers to act upon this conviction of faith that God is king and that the governance of of the people should be godly. Now, that's, of course, exactly what Luther's Two Kingdoms doctrine does not abstractly deny, but breaks down into a dialectic between left and right-hand kingdoms so that God rules, but in ever back-and-forth movement, as it were, between the left and the right-hand kingdoms. Whereas both the followers of Calvin whose chief doctrine, in a way, is the sovereignty of God. Uh, most miserable of all people, Calvin writes, is the one who is ignorant of the sovereignty of God. And so this idea that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, Jesus accomplished for us the kingdom of God, faith is faith in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Christians in the obedience of faith are to realize theocracy, to realize the reign of God on earth. And so that kind of, when you have that kind of thinking, it kind of uh, minimizes Luther's distinction between the left and the right-hand kingdoms. And the Anabaptists, uh, in many ways, shared this view, but unlike the Calvinists, with their emphasis on God's sovereignty now and without delay, the Anabaptists uh, had a much more a view much closer to Luther's about the fierce conflict between the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of Christ. Like Luther, they had this more apocalyptic view that God's sovereignty is contested and embattled 
and its promise to us as our ultimate future, but it's not yet fully here. And those who are truly born again realize that they are in a state of fundamental conflict with the kingdom of the devil all around them. So the Anabaptist option then, uh, in the beginning, was really inspired, I think, by two main thinkers, Carl uh, Stott and Thomas Munzer. Andreas Karlstadt and Thomas Munzer. I won't take time to talk about Karlstadt. Munzer is a very interesting case. He was a student in Wittenberg of Martin Luther, and evidently such a talented and good student that Luther recommended him for his first call and helped arrange a pastorate for him. And so Munzer goes off to be a pastor, evidently he was a difficult personality, a very talented one, but he had trouble in this parish. And then he came under the influence of the so-called Zwickau prophets. And Nicholas Storch is their, their leader. And these were lay people without university education, but evidently very well read in the Bible. And they came around with a very impressive uh, charismatic ministry a very charismatic ministry, claiming that they were being immediately inspired by the Holy Spirit. And while Luther is off hiding in the Wartburg Castle, and these Zwickau prophets come into Wittenberg, and they put on a very impressive show, and no one knows how to deal with them, and they're demanding immediately to cleanse the churches of the idols, to take all the religious statues and icons and pictures out and smash them and burn them to smithereens and cleanse the temples from this uh, popish pomp and circumstance and uh, graven images and false uh, piety, false religion. And so Luther dramatically has to come back and preach his uh, series of sermons, comes out of hiding uh, and quashes this iconoclastic fervor. But not so with Thomas Munzer. He becomes radicalized by the Anabaptist message and actually emerges very quickly as a leader of the Anabaptist movement. Marxists, beginning with Friedrich Engels, have always lifted up Thomas Munzer as the true revolutionary hero of the 16th century. Yeah, if I can make a, a quick mention here, um, Andrew and I received as a wedding present a poster from the GDR, that's the communist East Germany, on the occasion of Luther's, the 500th anniversary of his birth. And it shows all the cities on it where Luther was active in Eastern Germany. However, it also has um, a little like a, a key on the, on the map showing all the places where there were peasant insurrections and that was how they were able to uh, communize Luther for their own purposes to um, make him somehow, despite his quite famous objection to the peasant revolt, somehow uh, conflate the two and make uh, railroad Luther's birthday into a, a commemoration of, of the first uprising of the workers. Right. In fact, that, that move goes back to Friedrich Engels, who wrote a little book called The Peasants' War in Germany which was meant to discredit Luther's legacy and to lift up Munzer as the true forerunner of the communist cause. But, of course, Engels is an egregious case of what the mistake historians call presentism or what I call the retrospective fallacy. Engels 
simply makes uh, turns Munzer into nothing but um, a forerunner of himself and his partner Karl Marx, uh, and he totally misses the religious theological motives of Thomas Munzer. And that's what I want to just mention here uh, finally. Munzer was what you could call an apocalyptic theologian, but unlike Luther, he's an apocalyptic fanatic. That is to say, he believes that the sword is the means of executing God's will in the same way as the bread is the means of executing God's will that we be kept alive by feeding daily. So don't tell me that you have to wait for heavenly miracles in order to execute the will of God and bring about the uh, cleansing of the church and state at this moment. Don't tell me to wait upon God to act. It's up to us to act upon our faith. And there he takes readings from the book of Joshua and the uh, a book of Daniel in the Old Testament in a, a famous sermon before the princes. He's trying to persuade the princes to come over to his cause. Of course, after they heard this sermon, the princes <laughs> were not, not convinced. But in the sermon, Munzer says, the godless have no right to exist. Oh. except by the sufferance of the godly. The godless oh. have no right to exist. And so the, and I think in that text you have the recipe for the bloodbaths of the 20th century. Yeah, though, and often flipped to the, the godly have no right to exist except at the sufferance of the godless. I mean, that, that, that kind of logic can be flipped to anyone's advantage or disadvantage. You, you define, if you're the godly, you get to define uh, who the ungodly are exactly. So, so that was Thomas Munzer, and he agitated the peasants' revolt, uh, and he got a lot of oppressed peasants who were really getting screwed, you know, economically and, and so forth. They had a lot of legitimate complaints. And before they became violent, Luther actually supported them and said, yes, princes, stop treating them this way. This is appalling. Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, but here's the thing that I think a lot of interpreters miss, is that Munzer's preaching to the peasants was just have the courage to revolt and the heavenly armies will come to our rescue and just like they did in the book of Joshua. It was really a kind of fanatical preaching. If you just have the courage to revolt, heaven will come to help you. You force God's hand. You'll force God's hand, yeah. And of course, that was uh, he was leading the peasants into a highly predictable bloodbath where they got massacred uh, and so forth. And I think much of Luther's opposition to the peasants' revolt was not, as you pointed out, opposition to their just demands. In fact, he emphatically endorses them, politically speaking, left-hand kingdom-wise. But Luther objects to their uh, hijacking of the gospel for their political justice cause. And his real target here is not the peasants, but their preacher, Thomas Munzer. He knows Munzer. He was his student. And he knows exactly the, the line that Munzer is, has taken up. And 
he sees in Munzer's apocalyptic fanaticism a terrible confusion of the two kingdoms. Right. It's interesting, too, and in, in my readings of the texts that go with this, Luther actually makes a very strong argument for personal Christian pacifism, that by definition, as a Christian, you may never take the sword against another. And what made him so angry about Munzer's preaching is that he said there was a Christian duty to kill. And he said there may be, in certain circumstances, a, let's call it, secular duty to kill in cases of, you know, police work or defending against an invader or whatever, but there is never, ever a Christian duty or obligation to kill. And so Munzer claiming that his movement was Christian was, in fact, blasphemy of the gospel and of God's name. Of course, Thomas Munzer is not the end, but rather only the beginning of the Anabaptist movement historically, because after the Peasants' Revolt was uh, suppressed and Munzer was executed, the Anabaptists regrouped. And, and really looked at themselves with self-critical scrutiny and decided that Munzer's preaching of violence was a fundamental betrayal uh, of their deepest convictions. And their deepest convictions were that the kingdom of Christ is a, a, a peaceable community. And so the whole tendency of the Anabaptists to form separate communities removed from uh, secular governance entirely uh, was created by Menno Simmons in in response to the disaster of the Peasants' War. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that actually what the those early Mennonites had in common with Luther was the conviction of personal Christian pacifism, where they differ is whether there could be an also a secular obligation of Christians to engage in occasionally violent practices. That's right. That's right. And that's where Luther makes the argument in the commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that we referred to a couple last year. Uh, The same self-sacrificing love by which I personally turn my cheek to the enemy who strikes me. It's the same self-sacrificing love when I intervene and put my body between the aggressor and his would-be victim. Right. I would just like to say that I think historically Lutherans have remembered a lot more Luther's just war tradition and legitimation of that kind of secular work of self-love, but have deleted or forgotten his personal pacifism that has not become a major component of Lutheran piety, which I think is a damn shame. Well, you know, it, it shouldn't be forgotten because anybody who remembers that Luther had a death sentence on his head for the last 20 some years of his life ought to know that he never advocated violence to protect him from from uh, this. In fact, he resisted even the right of lesser magistrates uh, to resist the emperor when the emperor threatened war and so forth. Okay, now I just want to circle back to the Catholic option one more time. Uh, in my little book, uh, Luther versus Pope Leo, I talk about this. Pope Leo Tenth became Pope in 1517, I believe, or something like that. And he was a great Renaissance man, and he uh, realized that uh, the unity of Europe was very precarious. And when the Reformation broke out, he became all the more urgent in saying, we have to unite all the European Christians. How do we unite them? And how do we 
a back burner this Luther and his pesky Reformation trouble. Answer, crusade. It's time for another crusade. And of oh, course, dear. the Turks were knocking on the door of Vienna. They had conquered the Balkans. They had conquered Hungary. And they were besieging, about to besiege Vienna. And so then Pope Leo died, and then a, a new pope came along. But the same thing was the way to uh, overcome European disunity caused by Luther's Reformation was to reunite all Europeans in a holy war against the infidel Muslims invading from Turkey. And Luther wrote a very interesting tract called On War Against the Turk, and here comes out again his two kingdoms' distinctions. He totally agreed that the Turks were being aggressive and that there was call for a secular defense against Turkish aggression. But the idea, and I think I'm paraphrasing, but I'm very close to literally what he says, but the idea that we are an army of Christians fighting against them, an army of infidels, has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus Christ. So the whole idea of fighting a holy crusade for God or for Christ or something like that, he regards as blasphemous, a misunderstanding of the, of the right-hand kingdom. Yeah, in fact, earlier he had even counseled um, non-resistance, even secularly, of the Turks because the Turks were God's punishment <laughs> on evil Christendom. And so he's, uh, I think maybe as the threat grew greater, he's updated his view, but he is still very stringent against the idea that it is a Christian calling to resist the Turk. It is only a state calling. The work of the state can be godly. It can be godly work to defend your neighbor from aggression. And the work of the church can also be ungodly, as we've talked about in several cases, like, for example, Thomas Munzer or Luther's terrible things he said at the end of his life against the Jews and so forth. So both institutions, church and state, can be either demonized and ungodly, or they can be godly and be doing God's work in the world. It requires discernment. And part of the discernment is understanding the distinctive and different mandates of each of the, uh, what we call in our discourse, church and state. Okay. Well, does that cover the 16th century landscape adequately for this episode? I think more or less. It, I mean, there's always a much more to be said about these things. But Yeah, but I think we've mapped out the, the basic options that emerged at the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the modern era. So, well, so we are going to, in the next episode, move on to the Two Kingdoms 20th and 21st century edition because things have changed radically. And not only because of what actually went down in the 16th century, but also dramatic political changes like the conceptualization of democracy, which was really not on the horizon in the 16th century, and technological changes such as weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist in Luther's time. So we will turn to that in the next episode, and we can promise you more Nazis, more communists, and some very ambivalent expressions of democracy. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.